Hello and welcome to The Grand Thunk, the podcast in which we, Alex Blanchard and Rhiannon Kearns, discuss what we've been reading, watching and listening to. A fairly simple premise. We have transcripts in our link tree in our Instagram bio at The Grand Thunk. You can message us there or email us, thegrandthunk at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. Please check our show notes for content warnings and we also have a number of resources in there as well, which might help with some of the content that we're discussing today. So please subscribe, rate, review and tell all your friends. Today we are very lucky to have a special guest with us. We have Susan Ferber, who's an editor and has just published her debut novel, The Essence of an Hour, earlier this year. It's set in the 1940s. This is a story of summer romances and growing up, and it's bordered by tragedy. For all our listeners who haven't yet read your book, would you like to tell us a bit about your novel? Yes, I think that's a a really good summary of it, actually. So it is set in the 1940s in upstate New York, which is quite close to where I'm from originally in America. It's actually set in two timelines, really. So the narrator, our heroine, Lily Kerrigan, is reflecting about 10 years after the fact. So she's writing the novel, per se, in the early 1950s and reflecting on the summer she was 18 in 1941, which was the summer before America joined um, the Second World War. And she had this, you know, this great summer romance, as did her best friend. And there are tragic consequences of that of that summer. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting that writing from memory and have that retrospective attitude towards the characters, it makes it very unreliable and, and and there's a certain sort of twistedness to the narrative because of that. Yes, and that always been my plan for it actually was to have mm. it her looking back and her not really understanding what had happened 10 years before. And she's quite candid uh, early on Mm. saying, don't trust me. My memory may be faulty. And also I've read a lot of novels. I understand how narrative has to function within the written word. So Mm. I may be taking liberties with things or I may be leaving things out. Um, I'm shaping the narrative as I go along to make it make sense in literature, perhaps not as it makes sense in life. Mm. Um, So that was one thing I was really quite interested in is how we do remember and how we, I think we all do it. We all toss out things that don't necessarily make sense in the way that we see ourselves or the way that we see our stories. Mm. Yes, because you you described your character as messy and cruel. And whilst attempting to be honest, she is completely unreliable, which is such an interesting description of a character because she is quite unlikable in a lot of ways. And she is this this force that you can't trust and you can't, you don't quite know what she's about, if you know what I mean, which is interesting. How did it feel writing a character like this? Yes, yeah, so I think I always wanted her to be not necessarily unlikable. I didn't I didn't sit mm. down to write an unlikable heroine necessarily, but to make her as sort of brutally honest as she could be. Yes. Um, even though she's never quite brutally honest with herself, she mm. reflects that outward. And I had the idea of something like um, The Catcher in the Rye, where you, you know who Holden Caulfield is from that first paragraph. And that's what I wanted. I wanted a, a female heroine who could capture that sort of same sort of voice and, you know, not necessarily 
be likable, but be understandable. Mm. Um, and I think that was one of the difficult things in writing. It was trying to make sure, right, when she says something horrible, she says horrible observations, especially about her other female friends. Mm. Um, how do you make it so that that sounds like that's the 18-year-old self saying mm. that and not the late 20s self? Because I would hope that by the time she reached that yes. age, she's not quite as... Um, quite as cruel and caustic and sarcastic in her language because I, I think at 18 you are you're so mm. insecure about yourself that anything you don't like about yourself you find in other people instead to hate mm. um, and you're always reflecting inward and outward it's a, it's a strange relationship yeah that's really incredibly persuasive actually and her reflections as well on women aging are as you said from a naive perspective of having not age and there are so many reflections that she has on her own beauty and her own body and understanding of herself but similarly framed as an 18 year old which is crucial as you say yeah interesting this unreliability and it's very interesting you I feel like you speak a lot about so many novels as you're saying just then about the catcher and the ride but there's an unreliability that feels very Gatsby-esque about the way that she reworks events as they're happening to her that you hear her narrating the experience inside her head as well as narrating it verbally on the, on the page as it were and it's very interesting because that storytelling kind of distances her from all the events as they're happening as well as distances her from her friendships is this an important reflection of female friendships at that age for you Yes. Yeah. No, I think it definitely is. It's, it's very much indebted to um, the friendships that I had at that time mm. and also how alienated I think I, I certainly felt at 18 from my other female friends. That experience that happens to Lily in the first chapter, I think is crucial. She mm. is at a party and she is essentially, she is sexually assaulted. She's never really able to connect with other female characters after that because mm. she never knows how to frame or explain that experience. And yes. that's that's really where the novel is born for me um, mm. because that's where it comes from is that I was, you know, I was sexually assaulted when I was 19 years old um, at, a, at a party. It was, it was a different circumstances than what is written in the novel because I had to reframe things so it made sense within the 1940s context. What would have mm. happened to her would not have perhaps happened to a girl in the, you know, sort of early 2010s. But they're not dissimilar of experiences. And I think what I felt was I wasn't able to talk to anybody. I didn't have any friends who really understood. People wanted to be sympathetic and empathetic and listen, but it was mm. shut down. And I went quite insular and, in, you know, into myself and was quite upset. And how how do you explain that then? How do you, how yeah. do you see the world once that happens? And that's so much what the novel is for me about is how mm. does she, how does she keep going and how does she see every other experience through that lens of not being able to speak to anybody about what's yeah. happened to her? Yeah. It's, uh, it's really interesting talking about it with you now, because that's such a, like you said, that's the, the really pivotal kickoff point for the novel. And mm. you, you read it knowing that's definitely going to, you know, dominate and influence the story going forward in this young woman's life. But then weirdly, quite quickly, it slipped from my mind when we moved on to other parts of her life and the story kind of billowed and rolled around and I was following this person and, and the consequences of what's happening to her and her friends. And 
every so often when it was mentioned or I remembered, it, it kind of did jolt with me because it almost felt like a capsule that she had, like she talks about burying it, closing it off, putting it away and, and kind of becoming this new person. Was that something interesting to explore for you, that idea of how identity is shaped by something as traumatic as that? Yes, I think definitely. And how this is a character where traumatic events happen to her. She's also lost her mother quite traumatically. And she doesn't really speak about that very much mm. either. She has a strange way of filing, and she, she, she expresses this in the book, but she has a strange way of filing away experiences and only allowing them to impact her in the way she wants them to. And she's quite reticent for as many words as she uses throughout the book to describe other experiences. There's something she, are, she is very closed off about. And, you know, it is kind of that Hemingway thing of the iceberg yeah. of how much is going on underneath. And again, she is probably thinking literarily. So I would think about this as well is, is she doing that intentionally or how much of it is her hurt that she cannot let through yet in her own writing? And I think it's a, mm. it's a combination of both. I think some of it is, you know, from my end, it's stylistic choices, but I think from her end, for her exploring the story, she has not let in her pain yet. And I think mm -hmm. that's why she finds it easier to often explore other people's pain um, mm -hmm. and to try to insert herself in other people's stories where she really has no business being. What she mm -hmm. feels, I think, guilty over, what she is always reflecting on these 10 years later aren't quite the right things. Um, and I think a lot of it is because she cannot let her own trauma and she cannot let this fact that things have happened to her. She needs to see herself constantly as the heroine mm -hmm. or as you know a flawed heroine perhaps, but as somebody who's a person of action. Um, and ultimately she's not, she is somebody who unfortunate and traumatic things happen to. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's such a beautiful way of describing or understanding her dislocation. And I'm really sorry that that happened to you. And I'm, I'm so happy that you've managed to frame it into this book in, in such a, an interesting way. And it's been, it's been really positive as well. The, the last few years, I would say, something like Rosie Price's book and um, My Dark Vanessa, and there's lots of books coming out as well about these issues, various degrees of trauma that women experience. And 10 years ago, when I was a student, those books simply didn't exist. I mean, or I didn't know about them. All I had was Tess of the Durbervilles mm -hmm. um, to relate my experiences to. And so I think not even having a piece of literature that you could relate to uh, mm. was, was difficult as well. So that, that's one thing I'm really, really quite glad to see is coming, coming out there and that publishing is taking notice of this and really, you know, putting these stories forward. Mm, absolutely. I suppose in that realm as well, the framing of her as not necessarily, as you said, not as a victim, but as a woman of action is quite important to see that the myriad of ways that can be quite uncomfortable that people deal with trauma like that. Yes, yes, I think definitely, because I think she refuses to understand how she could be a victim. Um, mm. She doesn't want that. And then, of course, that goes into, you know, again, she's somewhat delusional in the way she frames things and she connects things and the way she sees symbols. But she brings that back to her Catholicism as well. And mm. she's always trying to understand because in Catholicism to commit um, a mortal sin, you have to, much like, you know, first degree murder in a way, you have to have intent behind it. So she can't understand 
what happens if something happens to you does that mm. count as a sin or does it not count to a, as a sin and she gets very convoluted in her mind about these things yeah. uh, and i think it sort of well it sends her over the edge essentially um, but again this is a character who is so reserved in herself that she almost refuses to have a breakdown she just keeps going and is very cold i think to other people i mean some readers have told me that they think she's quite a cold character and i think that's a fair assessment mm. and i don't think she would see herself as a as a cold person but she is not she is not warm and welcoming in that she yes she tells us her story but she doesn't really tell us what's going on inside her mind mm. yeah it's quite a difference isn't it that like you said telling telling your story and sharing your story are kind of quite different things letting someone in versus spelling it out for them it's an interesting dynamic I was very interested about what you were saying about her kind of battle with the concept of sin and how her religion weighs you can really feel that presence of it it's so prominent in the book and interestingly for quite a while in the book I actually read it as being set in Ireland for a little while until I realized oh is this set in America what am I doing and I'd love to hear more about those those Irish influences Yeah, so actually the book is most indebted to uh, a series of books by Edna O'Brien called The Country Girls. Mm -hmm. um, the first book is The Country Girls, and then the second book is, there's two titles, is either The Lonely Girl or The Girl with Green Eyes. And then the third book is Girls and Their Married Bliss. I remember reading those three books when I was 19 and thinking, my God, this is what I want to do. I want to tell this story except set in America. And the first book is It's actually quite similar to, to the book that I've written in that it's about a very twisted female friendship. Again, in that one, you have a character though called Baba and a character called Kate and Kate is our narrator, but she's quite staid. And Baba is the one who's always, you know, being offensive. She gets them kicked out of their convent school. So one of the things I want to do with this, this book is to twist it so that our main character is the one who's more outgoing versus the best friend is not the observer so much, but she's she's the one who's the more studying influence. But then I, I have my cake and eat it because then I have the more sort of Baba character like later on in the book with Mallory, who is a little bit more outrageous actually. But that book, again, I had not read until I read that or I read James Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. I had no idea, and this sounds ridiculous reflecting on it now, but I had no idea one could write about Catholicism <laughs> until I read those books at 18, 19. I had mostly read English novels where there were Protestant characters and you know, they, they got on with their lives. They had this sort of structure of you know, Victorian morals, but they, they were not haunted by this, this constant guilt or this leaving the church. And when I read Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, there is this one section where he, he has a conversion back to Catholicism. And then the next section, he has quite a violent, um, you know, falling away from the church. And it was like seeing my own experiences in print. And I thought, wow, you can mirror the fall of innocence with a loss of innocence and this, you know, going away from the church all in one coming of age story. Mm -hmm. So that, that really set in motion this. And as did, as I said, the country girls by Edna O'Brien, which is, you know, very much about Ireland and very much about what it was like in that time in the 1950s for Edna O'Brien growing up in that society. But I think even my society of, you know, sort of the noughties growing up in America 
come from a very conservative part of America. Was it as conservative as Ireland in the 1950s? No, by no means. Was it as conservative as America in the 1940s? No. But I think that there is still a, a huge conservative streak running through America. I mean, we see it on the news all the time, but it's what I come from and what we were allowed to say, what we were allowed to do, the way we were you know, restrained and even our thoughts were restrained in, in a way. So we didn't understand how to connect to the outside world. That makes it sound like I was in a cult, <laughs> but it's um, coming out of that that experience. I hadn't grown up like that for 18 years. And then I went to a very conservative university, which was very Catholic. And again, those conversations those girls have in the book where they're going, well, would you give it up before marriage? And it's, oh, you have to think of a great reason why you would. Um, you know, if I was, if I was, you know, desperately in love and we never see each other, fine, I lose my virginity, but otherwise it has to wait till marriage. I mean, these were conversations we were having in 2010. Mm. I mean, it was not, which sounds bizarre, but it was, it was, that was the world. And, you know, we had, you know, friends who had lost their virginities in high school and they would, you know, hide that until they'd had, you know, too much to drink and then they tell you that they lied to you and then you had girls who had never been kissed and were having these bizarre fantasies about it because it just had not happened so everybody was on these weird different playing fields but all of us had our sexuality so bottled up you know we just simply we didn't know what to do with it and so then when things like bad sex happened or sexual assault or rape we didn't know how to discuss that either because we couldn't even talk about normal healthy sexual mm. relationships it was so taboo or you know it's it's what's in the novel as well you could do some things but as long as you didn't go all the way then that was fine you were still you know you were still not put onto that other side mm. and so it was yeah it was very bizarre as I said and I think when I read the bell jar then um and I had written the first draft of this before I'd read the bell jar and then I read the bell jar and I was like well she's already done it but I read the bell jar and it felt more scarily close to my experiences of going to university than watching, you know, teen dramas on television about my own generation. So I think that is perhaps why it's set in a, in a different era as well, because I, I connected more naturally to that time and to that place from my own experiences. It's really interesting, I think, to, like you said, to see where that conversation feels comfortable to set in a, in a novel situation and have chosen to, to place it at that point in time. But also... How interesting and important it is to to still talk about that topic and and write fictionally about those conversations that, like you were saying, you were having in 2010. Like, I think that's something that everyone presumes and shoves back far into history with a kind of like roll of the eye. And it's there's so many parts of the world and parts of, you know, our active society and people we know and, and interact with whose views and lifestyles might be really aligned with yours, who then that has a completely different story for and I just think it's a, a very perhaps unusual but very important interesting spotlight to shine even through the lens of the 1940s it's still you can you know you can relate in whichever way people want to mm. but I think it's a uh, it's it's great to know where that kind of those influences have come for you and it makes it kind of even more connectable I guess mm. and that's what I was going to say that's one of the things I love about historical fiction uh whether it is fiction that was written historically or, you know, written now and it is set in the past is that uncomfortability of going, Oh, but things are better now. Yeah. And then mm. you think, mm, maybe not how, how similar our lives are. And that, that challenge 
of have you know have women come much further than they were then I mean in many ways yes of course mm. um, but in other ways I think those conversations are still difficult to happen and yeah. one of the things I've spoken about with some people is you know it's almost a litmus test of how traumatic do you think what happens to her in that opening chapter is I mean some people think it's it's not that bad and I think that's part of the conversation as well is okay is she is she fully raped she's not but she does have a, a very traumatic thing that happens to her. She mm-hmm. is, you know, she is sexually assaulted. She is held against her will. She's actually threatened to be raped and then she's not. And again, I think lots of people don't even, there's still this conversation going on in society about, Ooh, does that really count though? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the other things I really, I really wanted to dig into in it. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's, I think that's a testament to the way it's written as well, that it, there's a fuzziness around the line of consent in that moment of she's confused about whether or not she's consenting to that and what counts as consent in that moment. Does she want it? And she's not sure whether she wants it because she doesn't. She feels like she ought to yeah, or that she should. is meant to enjoy the kisses from, you know, slimy boys. Or, and that's a, just such an interesting, as going back again to the what counts as a mortal sin in terms of consent and, and the intention to do it. I think that's so interesting. Yeah, and putting on that timestamp as like it's almost you kind of I don't know, I'm putting this on, I'm speaking on behalf of you now, but it's almost like challenging the reader to say, where do you put this on the the moral scale in this time zone? You know, I think that's a very interesting kind of tactic to play with. There's that instinct to go, oh, it's what happened then or whatever. It kind of challenges that thought process to do with eras and modern times and history and and how it's very fluid, I guess. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your writing process. I'm also really interested in your kind of dual jobs as an editor and how that kind of influences your writing. How do you sort of get into the process? How do you sort of stay in the process? Talk to us a little bit about your your writing setup. So in this particular case, I had written the first draft of what became The Essence of an Hour when I was 19. Um, I similarly, this this bit in the book is autobiographical, I had glandular fever or mono, and I was set home from university. So while I was laid up in bed, um, once I'd sort of recovered enough to be able to sit up in bed, I decided to read Anna Karenina and Mm. to write a novel. I think this is very normal behavior. I don't know why. <laughs> Extremely um, productive illness there. Well done. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I just, I don't know if it's because I'd been in a fevered state for about you know, 26 <laughs> hours or something. I have no idea. But I woke up and I all of a sudden had that first line in my head. And again, it went back to hold, Holden Caulfield. And that, that first line, I took out a cigarette and I lit it, has never changed. Lots of other parts have changed, obviously. But that, that sort of immediate image, that flicker of, of the cigarette um, lighter. And I saw this heroine, how she was. I heard her voice. And it's, it's very different from how I speak, actually. It's much more, it's much more cruel and brutal and caustic <laughs> than I am, I think. But it was more reflective of my voice probably when I was 18, 19 than it certainly is now. So I wrote the first draft of this book very, very quickly while I was ill. And I wrote it in about a month, actually. I just sort of, I don't know where it came from. I just, I just saw it and I knew what the ending was. 
um, the ending again has never has never changed from what I originally imagined. So I saw that building in the whole time of how do you get the tragedy in there? How do you get the foreshadowing? Then I finished it. Sort of, it just sat there for years. I'd come back to it, I'd sort of look at it. Then I thought, oh, that's embarrassing. And then her voice never left me. So even throughout the years, I would go back and think about the characters. I mean, I have diary entries written from Laura. I mean, I know these characters so well, because I think even when it is in the first person, you cannot say, right, I'm writing in first person. I don't need to know any of the other characters. You actually need to know all the other characters just as well as your main character, even if your main character is, you know, completely solipsistic and cannot understand anything going else on anybody else's mind. You as the author still need to know. So I worked on that, you know, just just in sort of spare moments throughout the years and would redraft those first few chapters. And then when I was about 26, I thought, right, I really need to just rewrite it from scratch if, if, if it's ever going to work. At that point, my job was not as stressful as some of the other publishing jobs I've had throughout <laughs> the years. And they were very kind and they let me work. I think it was, I started at eight and I finished at four and the commute wasn't that bad. So I would get home by like 4.30. So I could have about three hours of writing every evening, which was an ideal setup for a short period of time. And I wrote that whole second draft during that, that period. And it's, it's always a constant struggle to, to carve out that time of writing. And for me, one of my go-tos if I don't feel like writing is I read because I still feel like I'm being productive mm -hmm. even though I know that I'm you know I'm procrastinating that I really need to be writing and I think when you're writing a first novel especially it's really difficult because you have no idea if anything's ever going to come from it you might just be wasting your time you might be spending needless hours in front of the computer when you could be doing something else so it is a struggle but I think if you for me I have to establish a routine um, because otherwise I, I can't get into it. It's it's like if you, I, I don't play any sport, so I, this is going to sound like a really bad analogy, but it's like if you know you can you can do an amazing jump or something and then you don't do it for two years and then you try to do the jump again, you're like, oh gosh, I can't do it. It's the same exact with writing where you, you just need that consistent practice every single day or, you know, as, as often as possible because that way you can, you can get quite, quickly into the depth of what you want to. At least I find I can't do that unless I'm, I'm in practice. That's how this book came into to being is I looked at all that first draft of what I'd written when I was younger. So that sort of 18 year old voice was there. I went back to my own diaries that I had written when I was 18, 19, 20, and you know, took some bits from there too, because your mind, your, your syntax, your language, the way you frame things, the immediacy it just goes. That's mm. not there. Even in your sort of mid twenties, you, you start to balance out. It's not this, if this doesn't happen in the next hour, I'm going to die, which is <laughs> how it feels when you're 18. Yeah. If somebody doesn't ring you, you're like, I am going to die mm. now. And that, that goes. So I think it's important to remember that 18 year olds speak very, very differently than you do even by your mid to late twenties. So the, the voice, that older narrator was what I added back in as well when I was, when I was rewriting it is thinking, right, how would she, how would she actually relate? How would she think? But she, she herself is still not in a good way. She is still quite, she's still quite traumatized. She hasn't, she hasn't been able to, I think, let in the experiences that have happened to her because she's not connecting the dots the right way. Um, she has not fully come of age. She's not actually had her epiphany, I don't think, mm. um, which is something 
strange about the book that usually happens in more conventional coming of age stories that they they sort of pack their their youthfulness away and then are ready to face the world but this was something i thought a little bit more authentic to what it means to grow up which is you don't have that definitive mark on the sand of yep now that's happened to me and you know now reader i've married him and i'm very happy and i've I've lived happily (laughs) ever after something like that now how do i write again i try to do it around around working so Again, it's just establishing a routine and sometimes I'm really good. I'm trying to do at least an hour or two every evening and that seems to be going all right. But, you know, there are periods in one's life where you just really don't feel like writing or it's just not coming. Once I've written something, you you have to leave it for several months before you can really get back into the editing of it. But I am back fully into the editing of what I'm working on at the moment, which is, I will say this as a writer, I just feel a lot better as a person um, when I'm writing and I feel really excited. And when you get that opportunity to be creative and go into this other world, it does feel like just a different life to what you're normally living. So yeah, I'm really quite excited to be back into it after having about six months sort of away from it. Sort of, again, going back to that that period I was talking about earlier where I'd sort of dabble into it for a little bit and go, oh, let's change this. And you're not really changing anything. That's not editing. You're, you're changing a comma. You're changing, you're cutting a sentence. You're replacing it with something else. It's not a good either. But that sort of going back into that world building and editing it is exhilarating. Mm. Oh, it's such a joyful description of, of your, how you feel about writing. It's really lovely. I couldn't help but sit here smiling. <laughs> it's really nice. <laughs> And does that mean there's a second project looming? Yes, I'm working on it now. It's it's still messy. It's coming together. Again, I had envisioned when I wrote this book that there might be another book in it. Again, because it's so indebted to The Country Girls by Edna O'Brien, where she does take these two characters and she shows us their lives over the, the course of many years. Again, I don't know where this came from, but last summer, and I had this idea in the back of my mind for years, even when I was writing the first one, I just woke up and I thought, oh, I know the first sentence, I know where it goes. <laughs> so it is chronicling that period that is re- referenced in the book of where this character of Lily is when she is in her late twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, why does she write the book? There's this husband sort of looming in the background clearly there is a breakdown of a marriage happening Mm. and what is happening there that influences her to think about the last 10 years Mm. can she actually grow up by the end of that book yeah god it's very Eleanor Ferrante isn't it it's so wonderful to hear you talk about it I know I love Eleanor Ferrante I mean (laughs) I've I've reread all of her books recently again and Again, I love that. I love that relationship of how you get these two characters and you get Mm. four books and they're just glorious four books of so many thoughts and so many details. And I don't think, I think that's one of the big things is you don't have a lot of that in women's literature. And one of the things Mm. that really bothers me in books about women, how do women come of age, is there really only seems to be two ways a woman can come of age. And that is either by the traditional method of getting married, mm-hmm. or now there seems to be another one, which is she can have a child and have the child on her own and and support it. And that's sort of, you know, her realizing her fertility and her womanhood. And I think there must be another way. Men get mm-hmm. to come of age because they go on an adventure mm-hmm. and then they, you know, they, they see something that's happened to them and then, you know, they're, they're a grown-up man. There's, there seems to be more, more ways. And I, I want to bring that into to women's literature. Mm. Mm. 
Good challenge. How wonderful. Please do. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing we like to do when we have wonderful authors such as yourself on the podcast is talk about some old loves, some current loves, and of course, some guilty pleasures. And now this can span books, podcasts, films, music, absolutely anything. Obviously, we tend to have, you know, people bring a literary focus on. um, But we'd love to chat to you about some of your recommendations. Something you've always loved. You talked about old Hollywood musicals and your favourites are Funny Girl and American in Paris. And I realise I I know so few of them so will you please tell us about them and get us excited about watching them because I'd love to watch them they sound amazing and what got you into them so I just think watching a musical is it's just instant happiness Mm -hmm. and I grew up my mother loved musicals old Hollywood Mm -hmm. musicals I've seen a lot and when you've seen as many as I have you know the bad, the good and the ugly. I mean, like they, uh-huh. they really are some awful ones. Yes. And, you know, most of them had the premise of, right, let's put on a show. Um, mm-hmm. So something like High School Musical even isn't that far away from what they were doing in the, the 30s and 40s, just churning these things out very, very yeah. cheaply, often with a score like Cole Porter that they already had on studio. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you can just put it out. Um, but even those ones, even the really awful sort of um, <laughs> ones with Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney, oh, it's like Strike of the Band or something, they're still really fun and there's usually always like a set piece in it with an amazing Mm -hmm. dance number so I really love the dancing as well and because of that I took tap dancing my whole life growing up Um, I I still do it um actually one night a week I do some tap dancing so I just felt really inspired by it and because I grew up in a small town we didn't, we didn't get a lot of live theater. Um, mm-hmm. We would have touring productions sometimes, but I didn't go to New York City for the first time until I think I was like 14, 15. So mm-hmm. I had never seen a genuine Broadway show until then. So having these often very famous musicals filmed, they were the way I got to experience them. And if there mm-hmm. wasn't a film of them, then I would have to just listen to the the soundtrack on YouTube once YouTube is available. And I would read the the description of what would happen mm-hmm. on Wikipedia. Yeah. And so I would imagine <laughs> it completely different. So I remember yeah, when I saw amazing. Les Mis. So when I saw Les Mis, I was like, oh, that's what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think it's it's great. And I think things like, you know, national theater doing like lives and cinemas. And it's so good because there's so many people who don't live near major theaters and they're only going to be able to see a limited number of shows Mm. um so yes i just i when i was then sort of becoming more discerning um i found my favorite musicals which are funny Mm. girl with the phenomenal barbara streisand Mm. and uh the other one would be american in paris with gene kelly and american in paris i love because again of the tap dancing um but also the ballet and he was somebody who really believed in bringing sort of an athletic discipline to dance and making it look oh so easy it is effortless when you see him dance and he also was hugely into the ballet as well and didn't see it as emasculating in any way Uh, Mm. so he wanted to bring that to American people so that they could see again you know a big huge Hollywood spectacular musical on the screen and then perhaps you know become interested in things like ballet and dance um, and more general culture it's just such a fun film. It has a Gershwin score. 
it has, you know, a ridiculous idea of what Paris looked like. I mean, it doesn't look like that mm-hmm. um, in the 1940s. And, it, you know, there's about a 17 minute dance sequence, <laughs> all dream sequence toward the end of the film. And BFI did a um, thing. I think it was it was just before COVID they did it, where they put a lot of these films up on the big screen, which was, you know, amazing to go and see how it would have looked for for people who would have seen it back in the 50s and you know it's just it's all absorbing um so i do i do recommend it a lot Mm. and the other one i really recommend would be funny girl which is very different there's not a ton of dancing in funny girl and i should say actually i have been very fortunate now that i live in london i have been able to see funny girl and american in paris both on the stage as well but perhaps because I've seen the films first, I, I think mm. the films are better. Um, <laughs> Funny Girl is the is the story of um, it's somewhat bi- biographical of Fanny Bryce and her her rise to fame. But it's it's just a really good old film about you know a woman who becomes much more successful than this man she is in love with and he cannot deal with the fame but to her she's always this little girl struggling to become a famous star and he is this you know wealthy you know gorgeous man and she can't you know she's always aspiring to him so she can't understand Mm. why he you know doesn't want to be with her anymore it's it's very sad but it's mm. also you know has famous songs like people um don't rain on my parade oh yes i knew there was one in it that i've heard a lot it's that one yeah did you when you saw it in the west end did you see the version i know was it sheridan smith played the title role recently yeah she did so that's what i saw and that was well she wasn't in it at that point it was her understudy her understudy was incredible as well they always are that, that was interesting because she wasn't she wasn't playing it like she was Barbara Streisand because I think mm-hmm. that's the the threat is you know mm-hmm. Barbara had originated it on stage she'd done the film it's never really been revived um, and a big production since and she had made it her own style which was you know it was, it was really good to see mm. Oh, brilliant. I love your old loves. That's a good, a good constant, I guess, to keep, keep you smiling and definitely one I should dip my toe into. Mm, completely. What about something that always inspires you? So I went with the, I went with the novels of Jane Austen. Um, mm. And that's because I think I've had a bit of a reading rut as well in the last so many months. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to, to Jane Austen. I was just reading and I thought, this is why I'm a reader. This is why I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. And she she constantly surprises me mm-hmm. and how difficult she is, actually. I think as well in my, sort of my late teens, early 20s, I went through this stage where I felt like people were putting Austin down a lot and would, you know, call her quite basic. That's what people sometimes think. Mm-hmm. Um and then you read it and you're like, this is genuinely, at least in my opinion, the best prose that has ever been written in the English language. And people are mm. calling this basic, like, mm. <laughs> um, you know, people are, you know, sort of celebrating these big, great male authors instead of mm-hmm. this. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible to me. So again, going back to Austin, sort of saying, no, she, she defines what the novel is, I think. I mean, mm. the, the novel hadn't really existed for too long before she started having a go at it. Mm. So when you you read it I find it strange to think that she set out the parameters of it that we still follow and mm. one of the things that's kind of been going on in my mind is like someone like F. Scott Fitzgerald 
was about 100 years away from writing when Austen was writing. And now mm. we're about 100 years away from when F. Scott Fitzgerald was writing. I don't know, that that sort of... Oh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, that just freaked me out for a second. <laughs> it does, because one, one feels so much more immediate to us. And mm. Austen feels like, oh, it's in a different time and yeah. place. But also, I think, as I said, she, you know, the sort of beat she has. I read, well, I've read a lot of sort of 19th century fiction and people are always putting like the stuff that you don't need and you're like why in the world is this in here Mm. like we just get to the point and I feel like Austin doesn't do that like her novels actually rattle along very quickly Mm. she knows rhythm she knows pace she knows characters she knows how to introduce a character um within a sentence uh Mm. persuasion you you know who um Sir Elliot is really really quickly actually in that first paragraph again you're like okay, I know, I know this guy and that's, I can laugh at him. And how she accomplishes that so sparsely yeah. is, again, I, she's, to me, she's the most talented writer ever. And yes, is she writing the same plot again and again? So what? She's doing it, I think, in new ingenious ways um, every time. And again, she is somebody who, she gets the cattiness of female. She gets that sort of mm. backstabbing your friend or the things that um, the Bingley sisters are always saying about the Bennett sisters, mm. the sarcastic remarks. Uh, she understands family, how you can really be ashamed of your family, but the moment somebody else steps in, mm-hmm. you, you know, you love them and you defend them. Mm. Um, and the psychological depth of the characters as well. I mean, some people say that doesn't happen until you get to, again, these like great big male writers of the 19th mm-hmm. century like Tolstoy and Henry James but it's like no Austin was doing it and again I go back to her and I think how much was I influenced by her mm-hmm. I don't think I write anything like Austin I mean to write like Austin would be like wow but there's other things of her I see in myself that she I think one of the things I found in her is I love her use of dialogue that she so heavily mm. relies on it to move things along. She doesn't really do description. One of the things I'm always so um, hard on myself about is I don't really do description that much. I mean, I know some writers write these gorgeous, you know, pages upon pages of how scenes look and I've never been interested in writing that. And sometimes I think like, oh, I'm not really a writer because I don't do that. To me, that's <laughs> what a writer does. And then I read Austin and I realized on this reading of Pride and Prejudice, that she mm-hmm. never even really describes what Pemberley looks like or Netherfield mm. Park. And yet we feel we have we have been to those places. Um, and Ferrante is actually quite similar. As I said, I've reread her and I feel like I've been to her her Naples, but it's it's through character, it's through it's through plot, yeah. it's through the way people interact with another, one another that we feel that we've been there, but we don't get pages upon description of what these places mm. look like. So um, I, I, that's why I think I've picked it as inspirational. As I'm I'm interested in how does she do it? Yeah, mm. that's such an astute observation, and as well that she's she's working with character and she's making sort of that those ironic sarcastic funny comments about character and she's almost creating the stereotypes that we think about now when we think about that time period you think about the sort of bombastic you know uncle or the quiet sister or you think about these certain characters and and it's from her writing that she is iconic in that way and what about something that you are currently loving what's on your radar right now that you'd love to tell us about so I'm reading La Simone de Beauvoir at the moment. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, I've read her her fiction for several years. And if you haven't read any Simone de Beauvoir, anybody listening, I mean, she, again, is a, is a, a phenomenal writer. 
but I'd always been really scared of her of her nonfiction. And I'd read famous bits of the second sex, like doing my degree and everything, but I don't know. I always thought it's such a ginormous tome. How am I ever going to get through it? And I also think like, oh, she was, you know, the cleverest woman in the world. How, how am I going to be able to, <laughs> to understand? And I will say that this, that this past year, actually, when with, with everything that's happened and the death of Sarah Everard um, back in March, and we were just stuck inside and I felt so powerless and angry. I went and I finally said, right, I'm just doing it. I'm reading The Second Sex. And it was what I was speaking about earlier as well of what she's writing about and her experiences of growing up were um, kind of in the sort of early 1900s, early 20th century. Yeah, I don't even know what decade we're in anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yeah, to the 1920s. um, And The Second Sex is sort of the late 1940s. Again, like so many things are still so true for women. It's that really disorienting fact of she thought in two generations, women would be equal in society to men. If women could just be educated um, mm. to the same degree as men, then this problem would be you know, fixed. And we've seen that that is simply not true. Mm. Um, so it was this, and there, there are parts of it that are incredibly dated, I should say, um, or, you know, prejudiced um, or, you know, sort of don't match what we think today. But in most ways, I would say it is, it is revolutionary work that holds firm. So I've been going back now recently, and one of the things I'm loving is reading her memoirs, mm. um, which are a little bit gentler than this, you know, this sort of knockout work of ushering in second wave feminism and, you know, philosophical thinking. And her memoirs are interesting because there's a novel that's just come out as well, um, this sort of lost novel. It's called The Inseparables. And that's been going around a lot. I've been seeing lots of people reading it. And it's it's really nice because I think it's a really good entrance into Simone Mm. de if you've not read her before. It's quite short. I think it was like 120, 150 pages. And it, again, captures these sort of themes that she's very interested in of the repression of women. She grew up in a very strict Catholic society as well, Catholic France at that time. And she has a friend who succumbs to the pressures of that lifestyle. And then she herself, Simone, gets out and she's interested in why she got out and her friend couldn't. And Mm. it's clear from reading her memoirs that she felt a tremendous amount of guilt over this, Mm. um, you know, into her 60s and 70s. I'm just really interested in reading about it as well. This idea of she wrote that novel. She wasn't happy with it. She then went on to write her memoirs. um, The first, which is Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter, which chronicles basically from when she's born to when she's about 2021 at the Sorbonne and then she meets Sartre. Um, Mm. But then she has other short fiction, which I'm reading as well, where she again goes back to this relationship that she had with this young woman growing up. And just, I just find it fascinating how certain moments can really impact a writer and they can keep going back to it again and again. I think that's one of the things I've loved about Simone's fiction for a long time is how much she does go into the biography, but you don't really know where the biography ends and fiction begins with her. Mm. Um, so now I'm into the now I'm into the Sartre years, um, <laughs> which is which is you know just fun because they're like sitting at cafes and they're talking about <laughs> their like open relationship and all these things. But like a lot of her fiction is about that 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 very famous open relationship that they had that he and she could go out and be with anybody they like, but that they would their core relationship, their sort of spiritual relationship, would be with each other. 
but a lot of the fiction is about whether that that premise even works. Mm. Um, so it's interesting now reading the second volume where she's mm. quite, yeah, she is again exploring whether she was happy in it or she wasn't happy um, in this relationship with him. And she obviously was, they, they loved and respected one another a lot, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't a quick fix. It wasn't an easy fix. Like she was still struggling with lots of, lots of complex issues of, of what it me- meant for her to be a woman in her society. Oh, I'll have to give the Inseparables a read. I've not read any Simone de Beauvoir, terrible to admit, but it's new to me. So I should definitely, that maybe that's a great recommendation as a way in is, uh, is that newest mm. piece. It's, it's yeah. really good. And it's, it's one of those things that's like, why didn't she publish it? It's, it's, it's excellent. So I think it is, it's a great place to start. And then if you like that, my other personal favorite is She Came to Stay. Mm-hmm. Um, which is about the the other woman in the relationship mm. with her and Sartre, um, which is really good. The yeah. Mandarins is very long. I don't recommend it. <laughs> I've, I've literally just started reading The Woman Destroyed, which is a short stories. Yeah, I'm loving it so far. But I'm so glad you said all of that about the second sex being such an intimidating book yes. that you've read the bits that you need to read but it's so yes you've made it feel so much more accessible no go go and read it and mm. I think there was a new translation like earlier in the 2000s um by mm-hmm. vintage and it's it's good yeah it's 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 readable <laughs> yeah oh amazing mm. oh, how would you feel if a novel of yours which had been hidden away for reasons that whatever reason you'd hidden it away how would you feel if that was published without your specific consent (laughs) oh I think mine would be more like when Harper Lee's book came out (laughs) that like this is not like that like that I think was uh, was yes I think that's Yes, that was like, this is an early draft. I think it's really interesting from a creative writing point of view to mm. see how she did that. The publisher said no, but if you write about the the memories, then yes, mm. do mm. it. But as a novel, no. So I think, I think I'd be in that camp, not the Simone, which this was clearly very polished. Yes. Um, and she just kept going back to it again and again in different works. I'm so glad yeah. you're enjoying um, The Woman Destroyed as well. Yeah, yeah, no coincidence. <laughs> and finally, your guiltiest pleasure. The <laughs> I love this one. This is great. So I picked Titanic, um, the yeah. film. <laughs> I love it. I mean... I will also say that like on my first date with my now husband, we both admitted how much we love Titanic. And I think that, you know, cemented the relationship. No. <laughs> um, so we rewatched it really recently and I still love it. Uh, I, I love everything about it. I love the young mm-hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio. I should say yeah. I was, um, I was five or six when it first came out oh, and wow. I'm the youngest of a big family. So my sisters had seen it and I was so mm-hmm. upset because I wanted to see it because I was in love with Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, I had this like little book. It was called A Modern Day Romeo and it had his picture on it. I, mean, oh, I love that. I don't even think I could read properly yet. I mean, I was, yeah, um, it was bad. But so I don't know why my mother finally relented and mm. she let me see it with my sisters. So I, I went and saw it in cinemas like five times. Oh, wow. Um, even then. So it's been a lifelong obsession. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just, the the music I mean my heart will go on I mean who does it's corny who doesn't love it though um, <laughs> yeah I like the the score in the background um just the famous lines like yeah you know, 
who do you want to go to a real party um, <laughs> to make it count all that sort of stuff it's I think it's it's a really bad film in many ways you rewatched it and you're like it is amazingly filmed like the I really love how it goes into real time basically when the second half of the film is kind of like you are watching it sink but then there's all the bits where like the fiance wants to shoot them and oh, yeah. you don't really need <laughs> I that. Forget all those you, bits. <laughs> yeah, because it's really bad. And you, you kind of already have like, right, there's there's already one crisis going on. We <laughs> don't, really don't need another. a second crisis going on. So that that I find difficult. And then you do realize how great of actors um, Kate Winslet and Leonardo um, DiCaprio are because the script is bad i mean mm. it's like you see you see people jack i see you like it's that bad uh, but it's great when you're watching oh it's so <laughs> great. yeah it's definitely one of those films for me so i watched titanic really late in life very opposite to you in that i my mum i basically so my dad's irish and so we were going back and forth to ireland on the ferry to visit our family loads growing up and I think when it was coming out and everyone was obsessed with it, my mum got it into her mind, probably rightly so, that if we as young children watched Titanic, we would never set foot on the ferry to Ireland again out of fear <laughs> of dying because <laughs> of those famous icebergs on the way to Dublin. Um, <laughs> so yeah, really, really. <laughs> we weren't allowed to watch it. And I remember not really fighting that or worrying about it, I guess, it didn't bother me and then it was quite late in like teenage life maybe no it can't have been early 20s but it must have been like 18 19 that I was like wow I haven't ever watched Titanic and Sam my husband is obsessed also with Titanic it is his oh good you know, I'm glad. he will watch he will watch um that film you know any day of the week <laughs> if we're struggling something that's what he pluck he listens to my heart oh, go will wow. go on on the daily he's obsessed and oh wow so I think he probably introduced it to me or we eventually watched it um yeah. And yeah, so I just, it's a funny one. I think for so many people like you, it does mm. chart quite a lot of their youth and then still adult life. And I've definitely mm. had a weird one where I've come into it at a certain point, but it really affects me. I think the dra the tragedy of the loss, I have mm. to, if I watch it, I know I can't watch it again for a very long time. Do you know what I mean? It really oh. sits with me over the next few days. I just, mm. it's such a... Well, it's tr the word tragedy just sums it up and also doesn't do enough at the same time. It's so wasteful mm. of life, the whole thing. And it, mm. through, you know, all these catastrophe, uh, you know, cacophony of events that are so catastrophic. And mm. it, I just kind of really obsess over the, the magnitude of loss of life for so many days afterwards that I have to be yeah. like, oh my God, I can't watch that again for a little while, even though the music's great and the cheesy lines are yeah. worth it. I just, I don't know, I've taken this down a heavy route, but I, it really sits with me, maybe because I didn't have that romantic falling in love with it as a young person. I think it's both ways. Though. Like, I think actually the, the strength of the film, as I said, is that second half where it turns into less about Jack and Rose and you, mm. you do get the sort of panoply of, of, of human suffering. Mm, and yeah. how many people went into the ocean and how yeah. many died and that she's one of the few that gets up you know she lives I find that much more impacting now than I do yeah but I still I still cry about yeah. Jack Rose I mean always, um, always. but then <laughs> there's also the futility isn't there of that it's just sort of a 
big dick competition is it of like we're going to build the biggest boat that's going to be the fastest and <laughs> yes. it's, it's very futile it's very sort of this masculine ego trip that leads to huge tragedy oh, yeah. and that in itself is so frustrating it's so unfair isn't it i watch it going it's just not mm. right it's so unfair that this happened which is very yeah simplistic view of history <laughs> but it's interesting watching it post covid and it felt mm. like really alarming again how similar it was like oh we can't tell people yet they'll panic yeah. and then oh, the panic sets in because you realize there are, there aren't half enough there are half enough boats for people to get off so yes. that should account for all the women and children all the women and children should at least be able to live and they don't. Many more people go into the water because of that that panic and oh that, that not being able to organize. It's such an interesting parallel. Oh such my God. a good metaphor. Yeah. What's your position on whether or not they would both fit on the piece of wood? <laughs> oh, uh, yes, that's a great question. They don't because there is the moment where he tries to clamber on board as well and then it tips. Um, <laughs> So they both can't. They both can't do it. Just Can you imagine being the set designer slash art department <laughs> who just made a piece of wood slash door, whatever it is they're clinging to, and then years down the line have been like, "Wow, we didn't even think about the size of it. We just, you know, wanted it to look good in the shot, and now they've unearthed like the biggest debate and the outrage of the nation for years to come because they could have both fit." And they just were like, "Well, oh, we just chose that side because it looked good in the shot." And they see he doesn't have a coat on he doesn't have a light vest on like he's he he's just never going to make it it's not it's not good um but i guess you always know he won't i don't know susan an absolute pleasure to talk to you and thank you so much for bringing our attention to the to your book and for talking to us your recommendations are amazing and i loved hearing your perspective on your characters as well so interesting I'm so happy to hear about Simone de Beauvoir being not as intimidating as I had anticipated. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a brilliant, brilliant to meet you, hear about your work, your inspirations. And I'm sure our listeners um, will be taking up many of those uh, of those tips you've you've laid out as well as um, your novel, The Essence of an Hour. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so fun to talk with both of you. It's been great. (laughs) We'll speak to you all again soon. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.